Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. On July 31st, 1972, a ragtag group of Black Americans hijacked a Delta flight and tried to reroute it to Algeria in search for a better life. However, like in most cases, not everything about this group is what it seemed. My name is Sophia Talley, and this is True Crime In It. So today's show is going to be a lighthearted one again, just because in light of recent news, I am filming right now at the end of June in 2022. Our country is in a political turmoil. I cannot discuss everything because I upload this not only to the podcast, but also on YouTube. But I just wanted to put something out there that was a little bit more lighthearted. So Melvin McNair was born in 1948 in North Carolina. His dad left the family when he was only four years old and his mom had to work tirelessly first in a tobacco factory before she moved on to work as a servant for a wealthy white family. Now, both of McNair's mother's roles were very reminiscent of the roles that slaves would play in society. And this idea did not escape him. In fact, he would then spend the rest of his life in search of a alternative. Melvin, though, turned out to be amazing at baseball. And this earned him a full scholarship to Winston-Salem State University. And this is where he met his wife, Jean Carroll Allen. And he says of his wife, she was the brains, I was the brawn. Before I met Jean, I was little more than a jock. So at this point, it is the 60s and 70s in the heart of the civil rights movement. And Melvin felt the injustices, but he didn't feel like his life was threatened at this point. He never felt the need to join in the civil rights marches. That is until he attended college. College just was not working out for him. He was not a conformist. He felt like he just didn't fit in. He had an issue with rule breaking and following rules. I'm kind of the same way where if you don't, if there is a rule, you want to know why that rule is. And back then, you know, 60s and 70s, it's more because the rule is there because I told you so. Even if there's a valid reason, a lot of the times authority didn't give a reason. Now, when we work with young people and children, we always give them a reason for the rule to help them understand and to bridge that gap. But this was a different time. And it didn't help that 
at the same time, he was becoming involved with the activist movement with Gene. So he would be marching, joining Gene in these marches. And then when he returned to school, he just would question all authority, which is pretty common at 18, which was around he was around 18 at this time because he just started college. But he began talking back to his coaches and just having an all around bad attitude to the point where he got kicked out of campus housing. And then he actually lost his scholarship and got kicked off of the baseball team. So at this point, about this point of his life, McNair says, it was like they were trying to break my spirit. Melvin didn't really have much to do after that besides get drafted into the military because America was entering war with Vietnam. This is possibly one of the worst things that can happen to him. His school that he went to was predominantly black. I don't know if I mentioned that. It was a predominantly black school. Well, in the military, he would get positive reinforcement where his superiors would compliment him on his work. But he was always passed over for promotions. And it seemed as if whenever there was a promotion, one of his white colleagues would get it. And of the military, he says, I like the discipline of the army, but the racism cut my ambitions short. And it got so bad that at one point he was actually playing in a basketball game and one of the military wives yelled out a racial slur telling him to get off the court. And when he told his superiors about this, they said that there's nothing that they can do about it. And it was at this point where he realized that he just could not be a part of the military, that they were not going to protect him against racial injustices. And so he began to do what he did in college, and that's rebel. And so he started to grow out his hair. And then he actually stopped saluting and he started raising the fist, the black fist as a sign of rebellion. Despite this, he was still actually going to be sent out to Vietnam. And before he was sent out, he tried, really tried to peacefully and to legally exit the military. First, he tried to leave the military by pleading that he was being subjected to daily racism and harassment. This did not work. Despite having an aunt who worked at the Pentagon help him make this case, the military wasn't having it. So then um, he decided to say, hey, I just had a baby and him and Jean just actually had a baby. And he told the military, I need time. I will go to Vietnam, but I need time to get my new family situated to get a job and make money so that way they don't go hungry while I'm gone. And somehow this worked. It worked. It bought them time. And so he took Gene and his baby and they settled in Detroit where they had a they had a friend, a mutual friend. In Detroit, Gene got a job as a school teacher and he worked at a local fast food Italian place named Gino's. However, despite moving to Detroit, which they wanted to move there, not just because they had a friend, but because of the large black population, they were hoping that it'll be better, but it wasn't. 
It wasn't. It was horrible. At the time, the Black Panther Party had a chapter in Detroit. This was a quote unquote radical black activist group that would try to work to kind of bridge the gap between underprivileged black youth and white youth in the community. So they would do things like feed the children in the morning before school. So that way they're not hungry and that way they could perform in school better. Like they would just do things like that to help uplift the local black community so that way they have a fighting chance okay but unfortunately the black panther party in detroit was being or just in general was being targeted by the fbi the fbi even framed the the Black Panther Party in a bombing of a supermarket. The FBI claimed that the Black Panther Party bombed the supermarket, but they didn't. They actually didn't. It was all planned by the FBI. And this is this is not like hearsay. This is recorded, documented truth. And if you want to hear more about what the FBI did during the civil rights movement, please, after you watch this video or listen, please give my MLK assassination episode a watch. It was the first episode of my last season. I'm going to link it below. It's a good, good deep dive into how the FBI was so against the civil rights movement because they feared that it would break down the American economy. It's it's literally insane. And it sounds like a, like a conspiracy theory. But I swear to you, there is evidence on the FBI website. It's all posted. It's all public knowledge. We just don't learn about it in school. So with the FBI being against the civil rights movement, Melvin and Jean just felt stuck. They wanted to help and they wanted to create a better life for them and their children. They would have two by this point, but they just didn't know what to do with the FBI not being on their side. And it didn't seem like racial tensions in the U.S. was ever going to get better. And this went from bad from to worse. This went from really bad to worse when a mutual friend of the couple named George Brown was walking home from a movie one night and he was shot by the police. Luckily, they used dummy rounds. So he he lived, but he was assaulted and shot by the police. Now, the police claim that he attacked them with a knife. Look, I wasn't there. Maybe he did. And we're going to get into more about Brown's past and you can make that decision for yourself whether or not you believe he did or not. However, who brings a gun to a knife fight? It is an unfair fight. There's so many other things you could do other than shoot a man. I think he was shot multiple times, like six times. It just... It was unnecessary, literal overkill. Luckily, he lived. Those charges actually got dropped because of lack of evidence. So this was the final straw for Gene and Melvin. And they realized they can no longer live here and they had to get out. About this time, Melvin says, but I can't deny our backs were against the wall. We felt we were facing death. We had to make a decision. There is a chapter of the Black Panther Party living in Algeria in hopes of creating a better life for Black people. And Melvin and Jean decided that they want to move their family, their two children, to Algeria in search of a better life. 
So Melvin Jean, George Brown, the man who was shot by police, and then a mutual friend, George Wright, and his girlfriend, Joyce Tillerson, hatched a plan. They decided that they were going to run away to Algeria, not just leave. No, they were going to hijack a plane and reroute it to Algeria. They were also planning on asking the U.S. government for a million dollars in ransom money in the process. So this is the part where we got to put our critical thinking hats for a little bit here. You might be thinking, Sophia, why didn't they just get a flight? It was the 70s. Flights were so cheap back then. Nothing was stopping Melvin and Jean from flying to Algeria legally. Well, here's the thing. Melvin and Jean could fly to Algeria, but their accomplices, George Brown and George Wright, cannot. Unbeknownst to Melvin and Jean, the Georges, as I will call them, were wanted men who escaped from a New Jersey prison and were living on the down low in Detroit. And they weren't, you know, just regular criminals. They were violent criminals. George Brown was convicted of armed robbery and George Wright was convicted of murder. It is believed that this whole hijacking idea was the George's idea to get to Algeria on the down low without their crimes being discovered and without having to face further jail time. Because if they try to get a ticket, guess what? Their name might be flagged. They're going to be found out. They are literally on the run from the law. And at the time, Melvin and Jean claimed that they had no idea that this was the case. And I believe them because of their background. There's nothing in their past. Like they have no criminal records. They have no reason to lie about this. To me, I just felt like Melvin and Jean, as he said, they had their backs against the wall. They felt unsafe. One of the Georges got shot. And now that we know that about George Brown's past, it is possible that he did brandish a knife to police officers to avoid getting found out. You know, like we it's it's 100% possible. It does not give an excuse for them to shoot him, but it is 100%, you know, plausible. So, yes, they decide to hijack a plane. In the planning, they decided to pick a plane, a specific plane that can make the journey across the Atlantic without having to refuel. They also chose a plane that didn't have an opening on the undercarriage of the plane so that way the FBI couldn't ambush them from underneath the plane. They decided to hijack a flight, a Delta Airlines flight that was leaving Detroit and heading to Miami. So on July 31st, 1972, the group of five hijackers bought plane tickets and boarded the Delta flight, but they decided to do so in disguise. Now, the ladies who boarded with their children just went on as regular passengers with their kids on a flight to Miami. George Wright was dressed as a priest and was holding a Bible that concealed a gun inside of it. So they cut out the pages and slipped a handgun in there. The other George, George Brown, was dressed as a quote-unquote disheveled college student, whatever that means. I don't know if there was many 
disheveled college students flying out of Detroit into Miami, but apparently they thought that was a good disguise to go unnoticed. And Melvin went dressed as a businessman, which I think was the best disguise in my opinion. I think the priest is a little overkill. Anytime you see like a priest board a plane in 1972 where... I don't know if you guys know this, but in the 70s, hijackings was very common. This was the era of D.B. Cooper. He hijacked a plane in the 70s and jumped out and skydived out. I wish I was making this up. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is that if you're in 1972 and you see a priest board the flight with only a Bible in his hands or pretty much just that, you're about to get hijacked. So once the plane was in the air, George Wright dressed as a priest, tapped on the flight attendant's shoulder and says, excuse me, can I ask you something? He then shows her the gun and says, keep cool. Just take us to the cockpit. In the cockpit, George Wright held the entire staff of the plane at gunpoint. Allegedly, even one of the passengers were held at gunpoint because he had the misfortune of exiting the bathroom. And he claims that Melvin held a gun to him as well. But Melvin, 50 years later, says he doesn't remember doing this, which I think is kind of sketchy. I mean, how do you not remember if you held a gun? I mean, (laughs) the answer would be no, if it was a definite no, you know what I'm saying? But you know, Maybe he really doesn't remember. It was 50 years, okay? Give him the benefit of the doubt here. Allegedly, Wright threatened the lives of everyone on the flight, saying that he will shoot them if they don't cooperate. The passengers, for the most part, a few of them, and I'm going to get into more testimony at the end, but a few of them seemed a little unbothered. The reason why they were unbothered, because during this time, they decided to play some of the 70s greatest hits, on the plane to keep passengers calm. They're playing, hold on, there's a Spotify playlist of these. Let me, let me see if I can pull it up. They're playing some of my favorite songs. What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Tired of Being Alone by Al Green. More Marvin Gaye. Stevie Wonder. Diana Raw. The Jackson 5. They were playing all these greatest hits to keep everyone calm and cool and collective during the flight. And it worked. They didn't even realize they were in danger. They didn't realize they were in danger at this time. It is insanity. And here's one quote from a passenger. He says, Lord, the 70s was a hell of a drug. But he says, nobody really knew what was happening until they walked off the plane. I'm amazed at what a clever plan those cats had. And he mentions walking off the plane, this account. But let me get into that. So Here's the problem with their plan. They chose this plane specifically to hijack because it can make it to Algeria without refueling. Unfortunately, the plane changed. It was not the right plane. And this happens even now. Like you'll you'll schedule a flight with a particular aircraft and then because of of maintenance or whatever, it gets switched last minute. And this is what happened here. And here's another thing. The pilot was not experienced. My man could not navigate going to Algeria. And he was honest about that. And so 
the ragtag of hijackers had to come up with a plan B. They decided, okay, we are going to refuel in Boston. Okay, get this guy what he needs to get to Algeria. And on top of that, have the FBI deliver the $1 million ransom money in nothing but swimwear. So there is a picture of the agent delivering this case of money in nothing but the shortest swim trunks that the 70s had to offer at the time. And the reason for the swim trunks was that he could not then conceal a weapon. And you know what? It worked. It worked. They got all the passengers off the plane and the ragtag hijackers were able to fly the rest of the plane overnight to Algeria. But when they make it to Algeria, things, again, do not go as planned. Number one, they make it to Algeria and authorities are waiting for them. They actually do not get arrested in Algeria, but the Algerian authorities do return the $1 million ransom to the U.S. as a political move. And they were really upset about this. But what made the hijackers even more upset is that when they went to link up with the Black Panther Party chapter, all they cared about was the lost million dollars. Um, They did not seem really welcoming. They did not care that these people hijacked a plane in their honor, which again, fair enough, they didn't ask for that. It was a lukewarm, if not cold, welcoming. And in Algeria, the hijackers just, I keep calling them that, but the group, the ragtag group, just was not doing well in Nigeria. First of all, they didn't speak French. Second, they were isolated. They didn't meet anybody. They were pretty much kept to themselves. And the worst part was that the Black Panther chapter in Algeria was not active at all. In fact, here's a quote from Melvin. They weren't dealing with the struggle. They were woman hunting in Algeria. We risked our lives for believing in the cause. When we got there, the cause was not there, end quote. After 18 months of disappointment using assumed identities, the group immigrated into France. Now they settled down into France under these aliases and began to rebuild their life. But unfortunately, due to pressure from the US government, the French police arrested them. So that way they can face consequences for their crimes in the US. They didn't spend that much time in prison though. In fact, the women didn't face prison time at all and were released after the trial was done. The trial took two years and they were released so that way they could go back to caring for their children. Melvin only served four years in prison because he got out early on good behavior. And part of the program for his good behavior was learning French. Just... There's just so much here, guys. Let's just keep going. George Wright actually separated from the group. He moved to Portugal and he changed his name to Jorge dos Santos, which sounds like a fake name, but okay. And he didn't tell the group where he went or where he was going or anything like that, possibly because this is the one that was wanted on murder charges back in New Jersey. So it makes sense that if he was trying to run away, you know, he didn't want anyone to know where he was going 
to be. And the U.S. was actively looking for him because, again, he's a convicted murderer. Okay, we can't have him running around the streets now, can we? And at first, you know, Melvin decided to lie low, but he slowly and surely began to build a life in a good reputation for himself in Cane, France. He lived in a neighborhood called, oh my goodness, I'm going to read this straight out, La Grace de Dieu, which in English translates to the grace of God. And in this neighborhood, he was, first of all, he worked as a social worker for the government. And he would actually help underprivileged youth find their way in this hard, hard, hard life. So that way they don't end up making the same mistakes that he did. And so he worked as a social worker for years. But on top of that, remember when he got that scholarship for baseball in the US? He decided to train youth baseball and he actually trained the youth baseball Olympic team. He was known in France as Mr. Baseball, worked so hard with young people on creating, you know, and in keeping them out of trouble and keeping them in baseball. He actually got a baseball field named after him, this man who hijacked a plane in 1972 was able to redeem himself and create a name for himself in his community to the point where they honored him with a baseball field named after him. And they named it after him in recognition for him and his wife's work with the underprivileged children in the area and getting them into something. And of baseball, he says, baseball is like a liberation in itself. You need logic and strategy and technique. There are many options. You need to pick the right ones. You need to do it quickly. You need to be the master of yourself. End quote. However, despite this redemption that France gave him, and by the way, like the government in France is like super proud on how they were able to give Melvin a second chance at life that he would not have gotten in the U.S. In fact, the mayor of Kane, I don't know if it's K-N, Kane, I'm so sorry to my French speakers, but the mayor who was a mayor of six years and who knows Melvin very well, he states, he's a very special person who has meant so much to our city. His contributions have been positive in every way. And this is Joel Bruno. But despite this ultimate redemption of changing so many lives and helping youths better themselves and navigate this difficult, difficult path of life, there are some still in the U.S. who feel like he needs to answer for his crimes. This includes, I think her name is pronounced Susan Curtsy Murphy, who was 12 at the time of the hijacking. And she says, we will live with the trauma until the day we are gone from this earth. McNair did good things did good works and had many people look up to him. I am one who does not, end quote. He did serve four years in prison. Nobody got hurt, luckily, because again, they were armed. Someone could have gotten hurt. Someone could have died that day. What he did is a serious offense. But what he did after this redemption arc can't be ignored either. And of the life that he made for himself, Melvin states, I've learned that if you want to change the system, you have to be part of the system. That's part of being an effective resistance. It's no good just attacking it. And I will leave you with that today. My name is Sophia Talley, and this is True Crime in Knit. For more information, including show notes, please visit www.thedrugthinner.com slash true crime. 
Stay safe, my friend. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.